Good morning. My name's Mike McNichols, and it's my privilege to be with you and to serve alongside my friends Beth and Dennis and Travis and all those who are leading us in worship this morning. I wonder if any of you, like me, have an occasional anxiety dream about something that you're about to do. I, I have those every so often. Had one this morning really early. I, I don't get anxious about doing this, but in my dream I showed up and everything was different here, uh, including the scripture text that I had studied and worked on. <laughs> that actually happened to me once, not here, but somewhere else, and I just faked my way through it. And in my dream, I, the only person I recognized in the room was Beth, and I said, Beth, it's, everything's wrong here. And she says, that's ah, okay. And I thought, well, yeah, it's okay for you. I'm the one here. Well, a few weeks ago when Beth asked me if I would speak this morning, I said yes before realizing that the texts were all about what they're all about today. And uh, it's all about marriage and a whole bunch of other stuff. And as you heard, there's a tremendous amount packed into these two texts of Scripture that you could spend weeks and months talking about, and I get 20 minutes with you on this text, these texts today. Um, preaching about marriage is a good thing. I'm all for it. I've been involved in it for quite some time myself. And, uh, but preaching about it is a whole other thing because it can get you into trouble. It can get other people into trouble as elbows are poking people alongside, seeing, see what I've been talking about over there. And it doesn't do well with the after church lunchtime conversations. And so it's a tough thing to do. And so I've been spending time in these texts, thinking them through how I might come before you and, and explore these texts. I've, I came away with something a little different. I, I realized as I went through these texts and prayed that there were, seemed to be two underlying questions here that these texts are addressing behind all of, all of the things that we've heard this morning. And the first question is, what does it really mean to be spiritual? And the second question is, is the life of true spirituality one that is nourished by the management of sin. Now, in our 1 Corinthians text, Paul, I think, is dealing with that first question. What does it really mean to be spiritual? And it appears that he's responding to some inquiries from some of these new Christians in Corinth. In fact, you might have noticed as we read the text at the very beginning, it's better for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's in quotes because most scholars believe that was a question put to Paul that he's responding to. So at, at first blush, it sounds as though Paul is telling his friends in the city of Corinth that there's a, a series of religious directives that give permission for marriage and divorce, that outline the rights of each marriage partner, that, that even calls some people into the celibate life. So you can find all those things in the text. I mean, they're there. But behind it all, I think Paul is really addressing a false view of Christian spirituality. If you know anything about the, the background, and context is always important, but the city of Corinth was a Roman colony, uh, very cosmopolitan. People from around the region had relocated there for a, a variety of reasons. But most scholars believe it was, it was also a highly sexually charged context. And these new Christians, having come out of that culture, would have been learning a whole new kind of life as faithful followers of Jesus. But behind their minds would still be hovering this old way of thinking, perhaps, 
some of that Greek philosophical thinking, a, a way of thinking that was, that was dualistic, where, where the material could be completely separated from the, the spiritual as forces, as realities opposing each other, with the spiritual being elevated above the material as the more preferred reality. So, since sexual relations would belong to the more base material world, it would stand to reason that denying one's sexuality, resisting the desire to marry, would be very consistent with the higher, more valued spiritual world, a mark of true spirituality. So Paul is speaking into more than just a series of questions, even naive questions about about marriage and sex. He is challenging a form of spiritual elitism that could threaten the health of the community of faith. So rather than letting them just go and discard the relationships that had characterized their former lives, he's helping the people to bring those relationships, the ones that that existed right then, as well as the ones that would come later under the Lordship of Christ. Now, the way that Paul approaches this topic to our ears might seem a little odd. I mean, calling people to a celibate life and all these interesting little rules about how you deal with your relationships, but really followers of Jesus today have other versions of this same problem. When our, when our faith comes alive, we don't just magically lose all the relationships uh, that we've had in the past. We don't give them up and we don't have the effects of what we've done before, just erased from our lives. We bring all of that with us and then we come together as a community that is defined by Jesus Christ. So often what we bring with us, like like a marriage relationship or, or our sexuality, those things find new life, new meaning. And other times, those things need some very, very serious attention. Well, Paul speaks to us in the same way that he speaks to his Corinthian friends. He, he steps away from all of the particularities of the message that we've heard this morning, and he offers this admonition as it's, as it's rendered in the, the New Revised Standard Version. He says, in whatever condition you were called, remain there with God. Now, had Paul said this a little bit differently, we might have come away with the idea that whatever we were when we trusted our lives to Jesus was fine because we could just remain there, stay there. No challenge to our relationships or our sexuality or our substance abuse or our anger or our hatred or our prejudices or anything else that we bring in. Just remain there. It's all good. Leave the material right where it's at. Revel in the more pristine space of the spiritual. After all, God's forgiveness comes to us by grace, right? So people really don't have to worry much about this whole cumbersome material life that sometimes gets in the way of true spirituality. So forgiveness and reconciliation with God comes by His grace, so people should really just remain as they are, or so the thinking might go. But Paul calls us to remain as we were, but with God. That is to say, we bring all that we are with us when we come to Jesus, but it never just stays there untouched by God. 
We bring our marriages, we bring our singleness, we bring our sexuality, our brokenness, our humanness. But when we do so with God, all that we are and all that we have becomes subject to Him. So yes, we we do come as we are, but God never leaves us that way. There's not some brand of special spirituality that just leaves our material lives off to themselves somewhere. True spirituality, it seems, emerges as the material and spiritual come together when we submit all that we are to God. Now, I think Jesus deals with that second question this morning. Is the life of true spirituality one that is nourished by the management of sin? In our Matthew text, some Pharisees have approached Jesus and they've brought to him this ongoing debate among rabbis and religious leaders. What are the conditions by which a man may divorce his wife? Can the separation be for any reason judged by the man, including his lack of interest in his wife? Or are there rules? Are there, are there boundaries to the relationship that limit divorce without eliminating the man's power over his wife? Well, these kinds of questions were common in that time. But the ones who had the most to lose, of course, in this whole conversation were the women. The husbands held power over their wives in that culture And while Jewish men were called to treasure their wives, the women were still considered to be their husband's possessions. Prized possessions to be sure, but possessions nonetheless. So if a wife was divorced by her husband, then he was to give her a certificate that as far as scholars know, was designed to free her from the marriage and allow her to remarry. If the woman was unable to find a husband, a new husband, her disgrace could possibly force her into a life of complete desperation. So there was really a lot lot at stake here. But Jesus, characteristically, just doesn't take the bait that they throw out. The Pharisees were were recognizing the reality of, of broken marriage relationships, and they were attempting to manage that brokenness, that sin, by creating legal pathways that recognize the rights of men while limiting the damage to women. But they began with the assumption that the process of divorce, the act of divorce was legitimate. After all, they said to Jesus, well, it's not okay to do, then why did Moses give us this whole thing in the first place? It was as though their reading of the scriptures actually started in Genesis chapter three. For them, that was really the beginning of the real story, it seems. You know that part, that's where after everything that God made is good just absolutely crashes and burns and goes right to smash. And it's the reality that everybody would really relate to. We say, yeah, we get that, we get this mess. And for these guys, their thinking is that's where the whole thing really starts for us. But Jesus puts the brakes on that thinking and he moves the argument back a bit. He reminds the Pharisees that from the very beginning, what is described for us in Genesis one and two, this created order that God calls good, that humans and the whole of creation live in unhindered relationship with God, that the breaking of the bond between a husband and wife was unthinkable at the beginning. It was God's intention 
that the relationship would be a permanent relationship, a one flesh bond that no one would have the authority to separate. And yet here they were, the religious, re, religious leaders of the day, allowing cultural preferences to supplant the, the desires and the intentions of God. Now, the thinking of the Pharisees seemed to be that if a, if a whole legal pathway to divorce could be established, then everyone got off the hook. The husband would have merely exercised his rights, and the woman would be free to get on with her life, such as it might be. The certificate of divorce would legitimize the, the separation, calling it valid. And since it was all within the bounds of legality, it was right and good and proper. But Jesus won't let that thinking stand. He calls this separation what it really is. He says that it's adultery. Adultery chosen and adultery compelled. If the man sends his wife away because he wants to marry another woman, then he chooses adultery because of what he prefers. Then the woman, very likely seeking to remarry in order to survive, is compelled into adultery. Either way, Jesus is suggesting, let's, let's not put lipstick on a pig here. Call it what it is. And I want to pause here for just a moment. Um, the topic for the Pharisees was the legitimacy and the legality of divorce. But the topic for Jesus was whether they would choose to live in the present reality of God's intentions, perhaps another way of speaking of the reality of the kingdom of God, or if they would just continue to manage their communal sin through legal gymnastics. Jesus' words about adultery are not given to condemn anyone. They are given to clear away the false protections of legal constructs in order to see what is real. The Pharisees saw the certificate of divorce as a, as a legal get-out-of-jail-free card for them. But Jesus repositioned it as a death certificate that declared the destruction, the destruction of a marriage. Now, I want to say as a kind of sidebar right now that divorce and remarriage, while not what God intended from the beginning, do not together create an unforgivable sin. We dare not say that God's forgiveness is extended to all people who ask for it, even those who have committed the most horrible and heinous of acts while at the same time claiming that his forgiveness is limited when it comes to divorce and remarriage. It's important to note that Jesus does not stand on the side of law, at least in the way that the Pharisees were attempting to interpret it. He stands on the side of persons, calling them to bring their lives into the light of God. And our assurance of this is offered to us beautifully in Scripture, when we're told, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We come as we are, but God never leaves us that way. So, what does it mean then, really, 
to be spiritual? Well, according to Paul, it it doesn't mean to invest ourselves in some kind of vain attempt to, to separate our lives into the material and the spiritual. Instead, we're called to bring all that we are and all of our human relationships and our behaviors under the Lordship of Christ. And according to Jesus, that involves submitting our lives to the white-hot clarity of what is real, defined by God's intentions for the whole of creation. It, It will not do for us to allow our own sense of spirituality to be formed and defined by various legalities that offer the illusion of religious respectability. Instead, we have been freed to take everything, everything, to God and entrust all of it to his care. One of the regular worship practices here at Holy Trinity is a time of confession. Together, we confess our sins to God. We receive the assurance of his forgiveness. Now, we can approach this practice in different ways. We can see it as just another legality to check off on our list of obediences that we like to do. We can make our confession with fear and trembling, hoping that God will not condemn us for what he's just now learning about our lives as though he didn't already know these things. Or we can see this time of confession as an expression of true spirituality, of an authentic life with God, where we come to him in confident openness and honesty, trusting him with every aspect of our lives. I've learned that when I'm out of that practice, when I kind of let confession go off to the sidelines of my life, I I tend to stop being honest with myself, and I stop being honest with God about what's real. I start playing just a bit fast and loose with God's love and his grace and his mercy And I forget that in order for my life to be formed by God's hand, I need to submit everything to him, both dark and light. Maybe some of you can resonate with that. And we can do that because God is trustworthy. And such openness and honesty is how God has intended it from the beginning. Amen.